we're going to look at how we at High Five facilitate and some advice and tips on things that have worked for us over the years and when considering facilitating on a challenge course. So I think that the start point for this, we will look at this uh, topic in in two different ways. We'll look at it from the perspective of a one day, a typical one day program where a a group is being brought to you and you have that that day to run a course. And then we'll look at it from a more multi-day programming mindset that it might be applicable to you if you are in a school setting and you have or you have a curriculum built in. Uh, where you're going to be using that multiple times throughout the year. But let's start with that one day, I would say, classic experience of a challenge course uh, participation or operation. How do we facilitate a challenge course? I mean, I think one place that we could start is acknowledging that it's challenging to, I have found as an instructor, of, uh, of others in a train the trainer environment, but also as a facilitator with participants to navigate the different realms of responsibility. And one model that may be helpful, this is in Meg Bolger and Sam Killerman's book, Unlocking the Magic of Facilitation, but just a reminder that if you think about three different titles, one being lecturer, where we are just giving information to participants and they're not interacting with each other, with that information. Another, the, the next step is teacher. So I'm giving information to my participants and they are interacting somewhat with that information. And then sort of the other end of the spectrum from lecture is facilitator. And in, in that book, I just referenced, it's a really simple graphic that helps with this. The facilitator is getting things started, but participants are interacting with each other. And I think that in my experience on the challenge course, as often an instructor or a lead trainer, it is demanded of me to be in those three different realms, right? So I need to give information about here's how a helmet works. That's me in lecture mode. I need to give information about how the belaying is going to work. That's teacher mode. And then the facilitation can then be in my framing and my debrief. And yet I think we kind of lump challenge course facilitation under one topic. It's when we're with a group on the challenge course. But I think it's helpful to sort of deconstruct that a little bit and say, like, what is the group demanding of us? Um, is my, That's my opening comment. Take it from their team. Yeah, I mean, I think what your group is demanding of you probably starts way before the, the actual individuals show up to your site. And, and it's when you're having that discussion with their team leader, their teacher, their chaperone, whatever it is, and you're doing your initial assessment around their goals and what they expect out of this experience. Why are they coming? And so that I think that initial assessment is so crucial to the facilit what people might think of as the facilitated experience. Boy, when I think of um, Lisa, you meant what does the group need? I think of the uh, kids that come to high five from Keene and they've been on the bus for a half hour. And when they get off the bus, what do they need to do? They need to go run around. So I really, I really appreciate that and that um, flexibility, especially at high five with um, being cognizant of that, that make sure you know what, what the group needs. And if they come off the bus, some are going to the bathroom, some are running around the field and we're taking that time to um, get to know them a little bit better, just in individual conversations. So I, I like that flexibility that we have at high five with that. 
Yeah. And I think that when it comes to that lecturer mode, that may be hard to sort of like imagine when are we lecturing on a challenge course, but I would give an example of when we are in front of a group saying, this is how a carabiner works. That's what it's called. This is what it's made of. I have found over the years that I can, like the more I can be intentional about what I'm lecturing and teaching about, like for a lot of the, for in this one day scenario, which is the opening prompt that you gave Phil, I, I feel like I don't even need to include half the stuff that I probably have included historically over the years. People don't care about why this harness is a certain way that it's called a carabiner, how it works. We talked in a previous episode about belaying, like, you know, obviously you need to have good belay commands and I never want to suggest anything other than that, but you don't even have to say on belay. You could say team ready. So like, what are the things that are like in our own checklist, but do not need to be part of the participants experience. And depending on the environment in a different prompt, that could be very significant, but in a short experience, if we really want to focus on facilitation, I think a lot of that technical content can be kept to ourselves. I agree, Lisa. I think part of what happens, particularly with, with newer facilitators, because they were just taught all of that technical information that they they aggregate that together with also the experience of being on a challenge course and so they they haven't they haven't separated what the person who was training them was doing relative to their own facilitated experience and how do you separate out the stuff you need to know as a trainer versus what you need to know as a facilitator I think that that is so important because I'm thinking of, you know, this is going to be a while back after this episode's come out, but there's a post that I made on Instagram about stop saying these things. And it, it created a little bit of a conversation in the in the comments around the use of certain words that indicate safety. I think that, that what this aligns with is I think that when we're taught when in a training as a facilitator, we're told a lot of these other stuff. We're told some of the mechanics around it. And then we go to a facilitation and we think that we've just heard that stuff. So it's important to then share it with our participants. But that stuff's just important for us. We keep that in. We know that stuff. We are doing the internal dialogue on what is safe and not safe. And by then presenting that to our participants, we can create an environment where they're then nervous because I've constantly rabbited on about all the things that keep us safe. Well, why do I need to do that if the program I'm actually going to facilitate is a truly, really safe one that I've created? I don't need to mention that stuff. And I think that's in relationship to mentioning some of the names of it. And I can and I'm a I've done that myself because I have all this like knowledge in my head and I want to be able to like share some of it because I think some of it's cool. And I realized like it's not helpful. I don't need to be talking about why I'm belaying a certain way or why I'm tying this knot instead of another knot, unless a participant says, is this safe? Then I can be like, sure. And then I can give that, but I don't need to do that up front. And I think that's a, that's a good reframe on facilitating a program is what actually information is relevant to you. And then what information is relevant to them. And if you gave some of that information, would that change their interaction with the course because of some perception they end up making based on that information. And then when you strip away all that stuff, then this is something that I will tell emerging professionals in a workshop is that does it, a set of challenge course facilitation skills need to be an entirely different and novel set of skills from what you already do with groups. 
if you're a good PE teacher, you know, there's just so much crossover. And I think because a lot of folks are learning a whole new set of skills to be a challenge course facilitator, there can be this perception, well, then I have to learn a whole new set of facilitation skills. And I think it's really important to sort of start with what's already working with my group work. And that is going to show up and be very effective on a challenge course. It doesn't need to be separate. Now, yes, there are some protocols and the space that you have, all that stuff matters, how you handle airtime with climbers and, and all that stuff. I, I always start when I think about facilitation and challenge course. Well, what, what works in other environments and what does that look like here? You don't need to start from scratch. Yeah, I mean, a classic examples of that, because we work with lots of either PE departments or coaches, is the classic coach, right? A coach takes a team and presents challenges, i.e. competition or whatever it is, and introduces new skills to them, and then harmoniously puts them together as a functioning unit, right? So if you're a good baseball coach, and then you learn the, the skills of running a challenge course, you could probably be a pretty good facilitator of a challenge course experience also using your coaching skills from your, you know, your practice of being a baseball coach. I think the big difference and having been a coach for many years, uh, the difference between um, that athletic team environment and also in the PE teacher uh, realm as well, because I certainly did that for many years. It's the difference between being a coach and telling people what to do. And then when we're on a challenge course, that's kind of a flipman that you want to create those, those uh, possibilities, but not tell them what to do. And that's really hard for a lot of people and also slowing things down when we're on the challenge course. When I came to I five, that was a challenge for me as well is to slow my delivery down, slow everything I do down. Cause when I was a coach and a PE teacher, it had to happen like this, you only got two hours, let's go. So I think it is a different way to facilitate on a course than the typical teaching method, um, lecture method that Lisa mentioned. I'm also thinking about our selection and sequence and progression of activities you know, it, it's, it's hard to even think about like <laughs> when you're, okay, so we're talking about a one day experience. Well, ultimately that's all tied to the goals, right? If their goal is to be more connected as a group, does that have to include high elements and low elements even? Could it be just field-based adventure activities, so my scope and sequence of that progression, that selection of the activities or elements I might choose is so directly related to that initial needs assessment and what are they here for? What are their intended outcomes? That to say a one-day experience has some connection activities, some field games, some problem solving, some low elements, and then a capstone of high elements is actually not necessarily true. <laughs> that's where it can become more nuanced and flip things on their heads. Right. We sometimes yeah. start with highs and end with field games. So <laughs> I would say probably every single one of us at some point has done a one day program where it's been games, lows, highs, end with a specialty. So I almost awesome. like know that people listening to this are doing that. And so I would say, one, we're not saying that that's necessarily a terrible thing, but I would say that in the years that I have been doing this, the the benefit of being able to change that sequence and meet the goals of the group has far exceeded all some of the benefits I had from the repetition of the same old, same old. There was 
something just almost going towards the end of a program, but in a day program, something that Lisa, I think, introduced to, to us, or at least to me, was finishing a program, having the last climb not be right at the end of a program. And like stopping it, knowing that there's an hour left or something, knowing that you're in your agenda, you you don't intentionally try to squeeze in a second climb or a second high activity that would end up end, having your end of your program abruptly end with a rush to a bus that they actually gets to slow it down. And because of that slowing the down, therefore, you may not do something else. You know, for a long time, we might end, have ended a one day program with a swing or a zip because it's like the culminate, it feels like it's a culminating experience. But all it did for as a facilitator very often was like this panic and rush. And I know that there's there's a relationship between running out of time and rushing through participants that leads to risky scenarios. So that's always been a really nice thing that I used to feel like I had to do those things. And it might be agenda-based when I worked at other facilities where it was like a rotational system where every group has to come through a program, everyone has to do the same things, and you're given an agenda. And as a facilitator, you don't actually have much say on what the program looks like. And that might be the case as well. But I would I always try to advocate now that there's a an opportunity to slow it down, realize you don't have to hit all the points. I, li- I recommend listening to uh, Finding Pinecones. It's an episode I talked about this in another way about not actually getting people in harnesses at all and it still being a good program. I think this this top, this idea has been alluded to in all of our inputs. I'll just name it that not all challenge course facilitation is the same. Not only at the different realms I talked about at the beginning, but I get, I've gotten tripped up so many times when I'm with a group and we're on a low element and then we transition to a high and I feel myself, like I feel clunky because I'm going from a group experience that, that requires collaboration and communication and creativity to a very much an individual experience on a, on a traditional climb. So I think it's also important to recognize that just because the challenge course is all in the same place, made of all the same materials, what the elements demand from us is often different because the tasks are also different. And I, and, and I don't say that to make it sound overly complicated. It's more like if it feels clunky for you, remember that it's it's different and the, t- the type of a task is different. And so you might be focusing on a group process and then turn your attention to an individual process while you're in belayer mode and then return to facilitating a group process. A couple of points I want to touch on before we move on to multi-day, which... W- which really just isn't an, in addition to some of these other things, is setting up the course and then the staffing of the program. So the setting up of the course, having people be able to do that ahead of time, either a collective group of people or yourself doing that before the group arrives is definitely uh, beneficial rather than trying to do, set up some elements in the moment. Unless, of course, you're going to use a natural break in a program like a lunch break to go and set up another element if you're going to change. I have run into situations in the past where I've tried to do the setup and the facilitation as the primary person on task. And that has been incredibly overwhelming and you're having to find activities or something to fill the gap for those participants who are waiting for you to set stuff up. And so that's something that I, that I consider. Then the other thing is just the staffing of it. If you've if you've got a lot of people on the program and you're coming with a lot of people, I think it's ideal to be able to have a floater. That's what we would term as a staff member who has the opportunity to monitor between the groups. Let's say it's a one-day program where there are five 
different groups with five different primary facilitators that you have someone wandering around as an addition to that to deal with any rescue potential not normal scenarios or setting up elements like that's a that's who we lean on for those moments and i know that when we're running program when we got a floater when that person comes by to us and i can say hey i don't think i'm going to go to the catwalk next can you go and set up the vertical playpen for me that that is taken away from me and i can then really 100 percent give my focus to the to the group that i'm working with i know that staffing is an issue but i think that having those things in place for a program are only benefits your ability to be adapting to a ever-changing group and also feel like you can fully give the attention and the focus to them and not have to worry about setup. Anything to add on setup or staffing? Is there a general number, the size of a program that we would recommend that you think about a floater? I think it has to do a lot with how well organized the delivery program is. Meaning, is this the first time you're doing a multi-group big rollout? Or is this your 12th time as an organization doing it? Hmm. Um, early on, more hands to help is important as you as you figure this out. I think, it, you know, for high five, when we hit five facilitators with their individual groups out on the course or six, then we start looking for that additional floater in play. It's nice if you can have it with four and, it, and part of it is the size of your course and how spread out it is too. Like how, how, how busy does it feel when it feels really busy because there's a lot of people in the same space, then having more hands to help uh, feels like you can manage that easier, especially if you have abrupt transitions because the weather goes south on you really quickly or some other incident takes place. And there's a need for additional facilitators to help a particular group. I think a lot plays into that. And I think also just standard staffing ratios, meaning are you just doing field activities, a classroom size, like our EOL team often is outside with, you know, a typical classroom uh, group. They might have 15 to 30 kids playing in a field at the same time. Well, you bring that group to the low course and if they're middle schoolers and you get a group of 30, you probably want three facilitators managing 10 each. And, you know, and again, you get into high elements, you know, it, a typical ratio in high elements is one to 12, particularly with adults, adult participants. If you get younger participants, you may want more than that. Depends on how well prepared you are and they are for the experience. Consult with your course manager on your staffing ratios. They, sh- they should know those things. <laughs> We've talked about uh, operation on a on a one day, which might be um, something that people interact with. But if you have the benefit of multi programmatic days, you've got maybe eight in a in a school season where you're going to eight different touch points or something like that. What's wh- how do what's the difference? How do we um, operate that kind of program if we have multiple days? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is so what we always say about you're much better able to make connections with whoever that is, which is obvious. But I think that really goes a long, long way. And I don't we emphasize that at High Five about connections before content, but especially in a multi-day program or working with a school or whoever you're working with over multiple days to start off really focusing on that. And a challenge course is a great thing, but 
the better you can make those initial connections, the smoother things are going to go. I've also learned through different groups, though, that um, when you see them not once a month, and especially uh, working with some of the uh, at-risk students, you never know what you're going to get from one day to the next. And to assume that in your in your facilitation, even though I may have been with them four or five times, I'm not there on a regular basis. I'm not really sure what, what's gone on, but there are going to be all sorts of different challenges with that. So just because you've laid some groundwork doesn't mean that they're going to remember that or that things are going to really flow smoothly because I've already had them four times and I'm going to see them another five times. So be flexible. I agree, Rich. I think if you think about contact hours and say you had, uh, I don't know, you're going to have 40 contact hours with this particular group. Well, if you did five, eight hour days consecutively, that's going to feel and look very different programmatically in how I approach it versus I'm going to see, I'm going to have two hour blocks every other week for a whole year. Right. Right. that that same 40 contact hours there's a lot more starts and stops with those yep. spaced out class time meetings and the transitions are going to have to be a lot more repetitive reconnecting again right because you haven't yep. seen them in 2 weeks you can get i think in some cases perhaps deeper in a shorter amount of time but also your impact is shorter right if i have you collectively together for, you know, five, eight hour days, that's really powerful in the short run, but I've only spent five days with you. But if yeah. I've spent 40 contact hours with a team or a group of students or, or participants over a whole year, then I can see their whole year experience and how they've grown over the course of a year. So I think that that is different also. I was recently talking to some school teachers about helping them come up with a plan for their year. And the discussion came around the amount of time they have in terms of their class time and thinking about how do we get harnesses on and set up and all of those kind of things. And so one of the big differences that I see between a one-day program and having multiple touch points with a particular group is that ability to be able to actually teach them how to do this stuff themselves and to take the time with it. So harnesses as a perfect example you might feel rushed to get the harnesses on because you don't want to suck up all of your time harness putting on if we don't get to climb because of it oh we got one climb because they took forever to stick harnesses on that's a it feels like a miss and so you try to be really efficient with it however on a longer program you don't have to worry about that as much and i would almost advocate to say they won't climb the first session and that's okay if the first session is just to get them used to gear and, and put them in harnesses, do activities wearing harnesses, having repetition with some of those things, that way from a process posi- position, by the end of the program, they don't, you don't have to ask them. They're doing the stuff themselves and you actually get more opportunity to climb towards the end because you've taken more time at the front. It really is, I think, impossible to separate out challenge course facilitation from challenge course design and then challenge course program design, right? So my previous comment was about how elements will affect your facilitation, but also from that sequencing perspective and timing that you mentioned, Phil, I think one of the facilitation pieces that I really value having learned is that 
recognizing that when you're working with a group that's new to adventure or challenge courses, there might be folks who are anxious about what's coming in the days ahead, the highs or the lows. And we all have our own style and there's no better, worse style. But I have found that if I can give folks in my group, a longer term group, a little sampling of all the types that we're then going to dive further into, that folks seem to be more present and we can have deeper conversations and I can have more reach as a facilitator. So an example of that might be if it's, you know, a four week long camp, summer camp experience, a common thing would be to do all the lows first and then sort of wait to get to highs. And a paradigm shift could be, you know, climb in the first few days and then cycle back and do some more ground activities and some lows and then climb again and then go, because those folks who love that are going to be most engaged versus I think if you really sequence your program, so you're doing all of your activity types in one bit time band, you're just going to have the folks who are the most engaged with that contributing. And I think that once you can challenge everyone, then you can have deeper conversations. I also think about the timeline of my experience that one days when I was a novice facilitator or a newer facilitator were excellent. And if I was told I had to do a multiple day, it stressed me out in a massive way because I didn't know how to fill my time. And also I didn't know to slow down. So I would maybe like do too much. And now I'm at the opposite, more towards the other end. I prefer multi days because I like the pace to be slower and get to more stuff. And one day stress me out because I think, how do I fit all of the stuff into one day? So it's like, it, it depends on, I think of like absorbing information. My brain has got a lot of more information in now. And so trying to pass between what is important in those moments can be challenging. Whereas when I was more uh, newer facilitator, I only had a limited amount of things I knew how to do. So I could easily feel that, I, that that would actually fill a full day. And if it was more than one day, I would stress out. So I just say that knowing that there might be people here who are like, I love one days. That might also be awesome too. And if you're comfortable in those environments, that's awesome. And I'm sure you do some great work. But multi days are better. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you think one day is a, I mean, a great, you're I mean, wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of it just comes down to what are the what are the outcomes and, and also setting our clients' expectations, you know. You're not gonna solve a team or a class or a community or a family's challenges in a one day program, you might bring some things to light. You might give people something to think about doing the, the heavy lifting, the work of really developing productive functioning community members is a long process. Even thinking about the concept of Ubuntu, which is near and dear to our hearts, that idea that I am because we are, takes a long time to learn that as a, as a simple functional thing, right? Like how does the community support me and therefore my support of the community makes everybody richer for it. Having realistic expectations of what, about what can be accomplished. Low ropes and high ropes are not magic elixirs that somehow just make people better. <laughs> it, it, it takes time, effort, deliberate, deliberate facilitation and experiences to bring that along. So that was a great closing sound by Chris. Where is it? Elixir? Is that a five-letter wordle? It's six. Darn six. It. You just have elixir. I wonder where where risk 
comes into the into the equation when we think of the difference between a one and a multi-day two. If you're trying to squeeze a lot into a one day, the the potential risk, physical risk, is probably higher, right? Like rushing through harnesses, rushing through climbs. And so there's more likelihood of you making mistakes, but also risk of failing at meeting the needs of the group. Whereas you were suggesting the needs of the group, are you going to be able to hit those? One days aren't going to solve a lot of problems. And if you've sold people on the idea that you could, in a day, fix some of these things, then you're more than likely going to fail. And so there's a greater risk at disappointing the client as well. Well, I mean, I don't know if this is analogous to, to educational instruction, but I think, you know, a semester long course gives you longer opportunity to both identify what you like about the content that's being taught, um, what your challenges are with as, as a learner with what's coming at you and be able to proactively ask for support around getting what you need to eventually learn or experience this in a positive way. When it comes at you full bore, you know, I think about like sometimes because I failed a semester long course, had to take a summer quickie to the three week version to try to, that didn't help. Three weeks is too short a time to identify. I cannot do calculus. <laughs> I need more help. And by the time I reach out for it, I've already failed. I'm going to struggle to edit and keep the word, the word summer quickie into this uh, podcast episode. <laughs> Chris, could you give me a different word other than quickie? And I'll just add that in. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> Do what you will, Phil. Yeah, I'll 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 work around it. <laughs> I think maybe if we could go around the group and and think of maybe one like tip or piece of advice that you, just one singular thing that you do when you're facilitating on a course that you think works. Mine is running activities. If you have the opportunity to be wearing harnesses, having outfitting everyone in harnesses. Putting everyone in the harnesses really early on in a program and being able to run activities wearing those harnesses and separating harnesses from climbing and having it just be a part of the program rather than do a lot of activities. Okay, now it's harness time and you can just set the energy just feels slightly different. So that would be my one piece of advice. Two of the key things um, I keep in the back of my head is that um, no matter what, you know, when you're facilitating a one day, multiple day or in a training scenario to give yourself permission to change the agenda. It's okay to go off script when you need to meet the needs of the group. And then also to do an activity every day that brings you joy uh, because that will also spread to your participants. Smiling and laughter always makes for a good day. Anna, I think that's a really good point when being at Rembrandt's summer adventure the day camp for many years, we had that attitude was kind of starts off with facilitation and in that if we're having fun, our kids and students are going to be having fun and our participants and campers. And I thought that was really a good idea. I think the three things that for me pop out more than anything is that old saying of be flexible, have an alternate plan and always keep your sense of humor. And I think that will uh, flow things pretty well for most situations. What jumped into my mind when you said, when you asked that question, Phil, was about around oftentimes, and I think Jim Grout talks about this in a, in a much earlier podcast about being a chameleon and trying to match the group that you're with and, and be a part of that group. But at the same time, 
being true to yourself and authentically being present as you with your group, they'll see through you faking it or being something different. And so I think when you, you get to that level of facilitation and comfort around that, just letting yourself be present is really important. I think that we can, it's, it's easy to sort of think, well, I'm, I'm on now and then I'm off now. Like, and I would, I would ask you to consider when you're facilitating with a group, you're, you're facilitating on your way to the course during snack, doing harnesses. I think sometimes we focus on like, okay, live, we're on the high elements. Now I'm really going to facilitate, but what are some ways that you can demonstrate your sincerity as a facilitator prior to that? So think about the whole program, not just the climbs. And the other piece that I put, and I'm not sure if folks will agree with this, but don't promise anything. I don't mean that. I don't mean in terms of outcomes, but like, if you're good, you can do the zip wire. Like that never works out for me. Um, And I don't like to equate a certain element with a certain behavior I'm looking for. And I realize it's, you know, I'm in a luxurious place to say that. I think other, you know, especially if you're working in a school, you you know, you, you look for certain things in your assessment that you need to see before you move on but I, I find that it has never been a benefit when I've promised things because I just boxed myself in. Oh, if you have done any type of norm setting, I'm not saying you have to, but if you have, you need to enforce those. Keep it alive if you've gone to the trouble. Thank you, friends, for talking about challenge course facilitation. Lots of tips here for everyone. And remember that you can always reach out to us by emailing us with our first initial last name at highfiveadventure.org. And if you want to connect with me, you can do so by going to at Vertical Playpen on Instagram and you can send me a message and I always respond. And also, if you found value in this episode, and I hope that you have, then please considering supporting the podcast by rating and reviewing. And if you're on Apple, you can do that quite easily. And if you're on Spotify, you can also do that. And if you're on another one, don't worry about it. Just share the podcast with your friends. Thank you all for being here. And I hope you're having an awesome day. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I'll take a the guy. <laughs>great points came out of there gems i would say elixirs <laughs> i would say summer quickie I'm, I'm glad my choice of words amuses you as soon as i did it well i looked at lisa's and lisa also had wide eyes so i, I was know. like at least one other person heard you say <laughs> summer quickie <laughs> my mind never goes there it always takes a minute or for someone else to point it out and then i'm like <laughs> so oblivious no i just cannot i'm just gonna sneak this one in there